Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society. This podcast is part of that effort. Uh, we've got our standard partner meeting format today. Uh, pretty great to have the gang back. We had a lot of travel going on and everyone kind of corralled back in the States. Um, we've got some interesting conversations for you. Mike and I dive into the impact of AI on Google and other search engines, which could be pretty severe. Uh, Chris just came back from a trip to China, uh, gives us a market catch up, but also makes the point that from what he was seeing, the quality of life in China may already be five to 10 years ahead of where we are in America. Uh, so we're going to dive into that a little bit and then get some more on that in the coming weeks. Uh, Fong does a great bit on demand generation. We got Brett covering some of the major happenings in, in uh, blockchain. So anyway, I hope you enjoy it. I think it's a good segment. Uh, and here we go. What's up, Mikey? You're low energy today. No, I'm good, man. I'm vibing. Our coffee machine's broken, so I haven't caffeinated yet. But other than that, things are good. Can we talk coffee machines for a quick second. Yeah, I think there's a trend on coffee machines. I mean, they're all trying to get super techy. We have one. I won't name names because it's not very nice, but like it breaks. Like you know, yeah. it never broke. The old coffee machines. They just yep. made coffee. Like the coffee yeah, gotta, thing. Like yeah, co- Mr. Like coffee. Mr. Coffee. Yeah, you got a side of plastic with it every time, but you know, <laughs> who, who didn't grow up with a side of plastic? You know, so I'll I'll put I'll put a name in only because I'm having a good experience. Mm. Uh, I'm on the Bruvi train, B R U V I, and it's like a Keurig type pod thing, but the two things it's tech enabled, all this other stuff that's like the given now. You know, there's an app that you don't need. So it'll all break. This other stuff. It'll break. Yeah, so far it's been good, but the. The two things is one is the decaf is Swiss water method decaf. And two is the pods supposedly are reasonable in a landfill. They break down. Do you, do you drink less decaf coffee now because you have to make a new pod every time as opposed to just brewing an entire pot? Probably a little less. How many pods? Not a lot less. How many pods do you have in a day? Eight. <laughs> Five to eight. Really? That's not yeah, good. I'm, uh, not gonna be happy about that. I, I love coffee flavors, so it's it's I'm trying to rotate between tea and coffee every other drink, but in an in an old me would just what put about, down what cups about, of cups of decaf. What about water? Back. It's it's overrated. I don't what's water? Water's yeah. in coffee. All right. So good transition for you here is when will our coffee machines use AI? Okay. Forget coffee machines. Let's talk about AI. Um, yeah. Here, here's, a, here's a thread for you. Look, AI, all the hype this year. Open AI pops out. Everyone's freaking out. Uh, the Turns out the big tech companies have their own AI platforms. They've opened them up. It's not maturing, but the market's actually shifting a little bit now and things are kind of advancing. It's no longer this instant hysteria and now... There's real operations and business decisions being made and starting to enter the market. What are you seeing? Yeah. Well, we're sort of seeing this application layer get built. And then on top of that application layer, we're starting to see lots of like uh, native apps get built. So the kind of the, the metaphor for folks here is sort of like the iPhone to the app store to apps, right? The app store is the application layer that enables the apps to get built. On top of that sits apps where people can build things, leveraging the AI brain, call it, 
in this case, say the iPhone of OpenAI, or eventually, I think it'll be Google's platforms too, and and, and other competitors also. Uh, I think people right now feel like it's a one or two or maybe three horse race. Clearly, Google's missed a step here, uh, being there that they were the uh, kind of the core originators of this technology way back in the day. Uh, it just didn't get there as fast as OpenAI, which you know is a conversation we were having the other day about large incumbents versus new new entrants to the market and who can move faster, be more nimble, and, and actually get shit done. And this was another example of like a startup that came in and built the best, most efficient AI platform and is now you know, a 20, 30, 50 trillion dollar company, perhaps. Right. So, uh, okay. So hold on here. This is where what I'm hearing, uh, from my co- private conversations differs from the media thread. What you just dropped as the media thread is open AI is going to eat the AI, become the AI platform of choice a record. That's not what I'm hearing from people at the big companies. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing from people at the big companies is we all have crazy internal AI that is better than OpenAI. Now that OpenAI has made theirs public, the big companies are now rolling theirs out and doing it slow and systematically, but that the technology is better. I don't know if that's true or not. There's no, this is kind of just word of mouth. Mm-hmm. So there's a real question. Uh, and the reason apparently why Microsoft invested in OpenAI is they weren't the only ones who didn't have a play internal already. So I think where this evolves to on the platform level is we're going to have a Microsoft AI platform, a Google, a Facebook AI platform, whatever. It's big tech. Yeah. This is going to be another major, just like everyone's compete, you know, there's Amazon Web Services and Google it's gonna, and, and there's Google Cloud. This is going to be just another division. And then all of the entrepreneurs out there, you know, who can't bear the exillion dollars it takes the, the upfront cost to build out a platform at this stage. We're going to be building application layer on top. And we're starting to see application layer now. We're seeing it integrated into all sorts of apps from office productivity to other things. And it's just starting. Yeah. Um, the applications are going to be immense. It's going to become part of daily life for almost everybody, I think. Yeah, it's going to be everywhere. I mean, I think the biggest... So, so yes to your initial point. I, I think I'm sure that others have interesting... Platforms. I, I'm a little bit of a skeptic to think that they're better or more powerful than open AIs, just given that, like, why wouldn't they have weaponized them first? I mean, this is going to hurt Google. There's no way it's not. So if Google really had the best platform, why wouldn't they have leveraged this into their Google search platform or tried to steer the market in their direction? So I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying it, it yeah, does bear I, some I'm, thought on, on strategy. I'm not saying my so sources they, are right either. But yeah, no, yeah. They, the Google side is really interesting in particular. And, you know, as Microsoft got Bing and that's their play on the search engine division of the big tech. Um, you know, when you look at what AI is being used for a lot right now, this is like when you're going to a destination versus kind of a, all these applications, it's going to be integrated in so many different things that we're, you know, other apps we're using, other uh, things. So it's not going to be just yeah. about search. But the first core use of search there's two types of search, right? There is, I'm looking for a destination website, which Google and, and others are really good at. And then there's, I have a question. I'm looking for information. And this is where they don't hold much of a candle to the AI platforms. Uh, and those, I don't know what percentage of search is the, is the information gathering. But if Google has had this and hasn't integrated, launched it, used it, you know, I might all shake out, but big strategic, you know, let me say it this way. Open IAI has been a catalyst for the market advancing at the very least. Yeah. 
And I agree with everything you're saying. I mean, I think the the search question is an interesting one. I don't know what search will look like going forward with this, right? Because in some sense, it's kind of all information seeking. So unless you're going to like watch a video, which is not in the OpenAI or ChatGPT kind of mainframe right now, maybe it will be. Uh, kind of everything you do on Google, whether you're asking a question or not, is information seeking that in some way, shape, or form, like you can get the answer from ChatGPT, right? And probably better and faster. And you know, today maybe not more accurate, but soon to be more accurate, right? Um, so I think this is the first fundamental shift that actually represents a core risk to Google's search business. Yeah. Um, and then what that means going forward is very interesting. So if you're a brand right now, you're reaching your customers through SEO. What does that look like in the world of ChatGPT? Is it if you say, hey, what's the best deodorant? It says, here's the best deodorant, or there's a sponsored deodorant above the ones that it thinks are the best deodorant based upon whatever criteria the AI model thinks is makes the best deodorant. So there's a whole layer of consumer advertising that I think is actually the most interesting part to think about this right now, because that I don't know what's going to happen long term. We don't know what's going to happen long term, but short term, we know people are going to move from Google search to asking questions to an AI. So when that happens, what happens to SEO? And I think mm -hmm. that's the trillion dollar question that a lot of companies have to think about right now. My hypothesis is the two are going to integrate. Right. It's going to be it, it, at, from a consumer interface perspective. It's the search bar. It doesn't matter what website it's on. And I, but you know, and I'm saying this and I feel the same way about messages like email, text messages, Slack, that should all be in one feed. I do not care what platform it's on, put it in one feed. And unfortunately, APIs are not open and do not allow that right now. But the, um, where I think this goes, if Google does have a good technology is I think we're going to start seeing components of this show up. This is what I would assume in the Google interface. And so the question then is with this, you know, there's two dimensions to the AI, right? One is the opening the API of it to support a whole myriad of other applications. But within search itself, I think it's going to start to get integrated. So if I was Microsoft and they're behind OpenAI, I would be having this integrating into Bing. I'm sure they're already working on it. There it is. Yeah. There you go. Yes. So it's in Bing and like Google has their version of this. When you ask a question in Google, you, you get answers now, right? Even before Right, this, but it'll be right? different. I mean, when you and I know once you do the chat GPT experience, you can see. Right, but that's my point, man. My point is Google can't go that far because Google makes their money on you searching for something, then giving you an answer, and then there's five paid links for relevant sources below that, right? Where does that business go when you're used to going to chat GPT and just getting an answer? Right. Yeah, it has to. It has to evolve. The advertising medium has to evolve for sure. Because right. The way the way the information is going to be delivered is different. For sure. But this isn't like the old media days when when you were writing your first checks back in the yonder years. It is oh where you know you had moderately large ad budgets online, but really nothing like the scale we see today. I mean, you're talking about Google's basically sixty percent of their entire revenue stream. I think it's something like sixty percent. Is, is this business. So you know, what happens to that in this game? I mean, it's not going to go away overnight, but it's, it's the first real threat they've faced in their, in their core search business in yeah. you know, a decade at least. Food for thought. It's going to be an interesting ride yeah. to watch, but this is certainly the mega trend happening right now. All right. Thank you, Mikey. All right, Fong. 
Hi, Mark. What do you got for us this week? Yeah. Uh, well, today I'm going to take everyone uh, back to the very earliest stages of starting a business. So before you build a team, before you reach product market fit, before you even have an MVP, I'm going to talk about how after coming up with a business idea, do you go about validating that idea before seeking resources into developing an MVP? Now, the first thing you should do before you even talk about the product is to validate that you have a real pain point. Are you solving a real problem that a lot of people have and feel passionate about? The answer has to be yes. Your product needs to be a painkiller, something that people have to have, right? It can't be just a vitamin that people think it's nice to have, but could live without. So the best way to validate this is to talk to potential customers, people in your target market that you suspect have the problem. When you talk to them, don't even mention the product idea. Instead, you can describe the pain point and ask open-ended questions around it. Uh, some questions you can ask are, describe your experience around this problem. I know that's not a question, but that's a good, that's a good thing to ask them to do. How do you currently solve this problem? How often do you have this problem? Have you tried to find a solution? If so, what's worked? Why did it work? Why did it not? And then finally, how much would you pay to solve this problem? I think once you start asking these questions, you'll get a feeling of comfort around whether this is actually a true pain point. Um, and then it's time to validate the product idea, right? So once you feel like it's a true pain point and you have the idea for the product, you can validate that. Get reactions from real people so that you can, one, understand whether the product idea really solves the pain point that you've identified. And two, you need to gather feedback so that you can best communicate your product to customers. And so that's what you're doing here. And you can do that by creating a landing page or a marketing website. So the idea is, you know, make a really simple landing page, but make it look as real as possible, as if the product and the company actually really exists. Describe the product, communicate what it is, who it's for, how to use it. You know, you could use imagery if possible to bring it more to life. And then include call to action buttons like buy now or learn more or sign up. Um, I think if you do this, you can quantitatively measure the click-through, engage if people are really interested and would be willing to buy. There are a lot of tools you can do to, to you could use to do this. So, you know, Wix, Squarespace, Figma, whatever uh, is easiest for you. Um, once you have the website, it's gather, you should gather reactions to the website so that you can fine-tune the messaging, figure out whether you're communicating it right. So you can do this by sitting with potential customers, either in person or with a screen share, and show them the website. Don't interrupt them. Don't try to explain anything. Don't leave them. But just watch how they interact with it. And then again, ask open-ended questions. What do you think this is? Who is it for? What do you think it does? What stands out most? What do you like or dislike about this? And then once you have this feedback, you can refine the messaging on your website. And at this point, you're ready to run a paid advertising campaign um, that you can drive potential customers to your website. And then this way, you can get quantitative feedback from a completely independent, unbiased group of potential buyers. You don't really need to spend a lot of money uh, on this campaign. You know, I think maybe 100 or 200 bucks can get you a statistically significant sample size. 
And then when you're assessing campaign results, look at metrics such as, you know, the number of views the ad had, click through from the ad, the website traffic that the ad generated, um, how long people are staying on your website. And then, you know, really important is to look at the click throughs on your call to action buttons, because this is going to give you an idea of purchase intent. So then with this information, you can really assess whether you have a product idea that's worth pursuing. If the results don't look great um, and you're sure it's not a communication issue. And I think if you did all the steps that I previously discussed correctly, then it, it shouldn't be. Um, then you need to pivot your product. And then if you're getting really great feedback or you know great feedback, then you can start spending money and, and resources to build out your MVP. Um, yeah. And that's what I have today for validating your business idea. That is super useful. I want to add one thing. Here's what's not validation. Someone who will be worried about hurting your feelings, either because they already know you or because you're standing in front of them. And them saying, yeah, it's a good idea. Right. Like your mom. Because people will lie to you to be polite. Yep. And that is the reality of a mistake I've made plenty in my younger years. You need to sell something to people who actually want to buy it. And that is a foundational, basic thing. And it's a lot cheaper to test that before you build anything. That's the whole lean method is putting that. Switching the order of those two. Um, so my strong recommendation, to everyone, is and having started a lot of companies in my career, there's a vacuum silence when you try to sell something people don't want, and when you find product market fit, people are asking you for it. Oh, you have more of that? I want that. So if you're not hearing it, change, make it, make a move, change something. There's a real you can hear demand. Right. If you can't hear any demand, don't do that business, change something and do it fast because the cost is your time. Yeah, for sure. And make sure that you're talking to people who uh, are the right target market and to your point, not biased in any way and not being polite. Yeah, go, and I think having these different uh, methodologies, exactly. And even if you don't have it, go sell it. And if people say, I want to buy that, I'll pay. Then you make it. Right. And I think using uh, different methodologies in, you know, really speaking to people, having ads speak for themselves, having your website speak for themselves. Like, I think that that will give you kind of a, a mixed, uh, you know, mixed uh, feedback um, that will really kind of give, get to a true answer of whether or not you have demand for your product. Thank you, Fong. Thanks. All right, Brett. Cr crypto prices are up. Bitcoin hit 30K. Right, which I love that smile that just hit your face. I know right? it's like a breath of fresh uh, air and all the stuff that's. We're, going we're also hearing a different tone and energy from the investment community now, and we're talking to people. Uh, the 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 dark cloud of the FTX scandal is starting to dissipate, and people are yeah. starting to talk about investments and strategic opportunities again. Uh, fear seems to be dissipating, and opportunism seems to be returning. So early days of that, but refreshing. Yeah, no, I've definitely uh, felt more positive vibes. Uh, you know, now that the FTX event is uh, more or less in the rear view, um, you know, people are really starting to forge ahead and, uh, you know, pick up where, where they were prior to uh, all these, these bad incidents last year. So it's, it's great. And, you know, a lot of the people that I've 
been involved with uh, for for some time are still in it, still still thriving. And uh, yeah, it's just it's great to see uh, that enthusiasm starting to to return. It's awesome. Okay, what else do you got for us this week? Yeah, so uh, something that's exciting for me. It's it's a little bit more on the technical side, but but I think it's something everybody in crypto should appreciate. But Ethereum upgraded um, to uh, they it, they upgraded. It's called uh, the Shanghai Fork, so uh, also known as Chappella. Uh, so when uh, in order to secure Ethereum, you need to stake Ethereum. So uh, earlier this year, uh, Ethereum switched from proof of work to proof of stake. So in order to secure the network, you need to stake a certain amount of Ethereum. Um, People have been unable to withdraw the Ethereum that they've de- deposited. So the Chappella upgrade now allows validators to uh, withdraw their stake, uh, which is great. Uh, the staking rate on Ethereum is about 15%, uh, whereas other proof of stake networks are about 50%. And part of that reason is uh, the uncertainty around withdrawals. People didn't know when they would happen, how seamless they would be. So uh, I anticipate that we'll see the staking rate go up, and uh, and that's a great thing for the security of the uh, of the network. Um, and another so, thing too. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just to say. So, so what this means though is, people are saying, "Hey, I'm going to stake. I'm going to put my money up to say that when my computer determines what transactions were done, it's right. I'm guaranteeing it." Yeah. But they couldn't get their money back. <clears throat> yeah. And now so they, they can. Yeah. Yeah, um, and there was a lot of uncertainty around that, so that's why the staking rate was was so low. Um, and yeah, you know the the staking mechanism is used to enforce rewards. It's also used uh, for consensus in terms of weighting how many votes certain validators get. So it's it's very important to the protocol. Um, but now that people have liquidity, it's uh, it's it's it should open up the door for for more people lending essentially their ETH to secure the network and and a testament to the to uh, all the hard work by the people involved at the ethereum foundation and uh, other adjacent companies uh, it went very smoothly um, i think there was about 10 million dollars worth of ETH that was withdrawn within uh you know the first hour which is about about 10 million bucks, which isn't bad. Uh, there was a lot of speculation that uh, there would be sort of mass withdrawals and sales, which would uh, be detrimental to Ethereum's price, but it's held up relatively well. Um, and uh, my hypothesis is that the people that were willing to stake uh, without knowing when they can withdraw were people that had a lot of conviction in Ethereum. So it wasn't necessarily that, you know, they're they're strapped for cash or that they no longer believe in Ethereum or, or the price. So uh, their staking is is more sticky, um, and yeah, it's it's great to see everything went smoothly. Got it. Very cool. Very cool. Chris, we haven't recorded in a little bit. It's great to have you back. You were in Missed China you. for a while, seeing family. Yes, that's right. Uh, finally, finally adjusted for jet lag. Uh, oh my god, it's awful, right? Horrible. Twelve hours, the worst possible jet lag you can get. Um, that yeah, was an eye-opening experience this time. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it offline more. But. Yeah. When was the last time you were back before this trip? Four, four years ago, pre-pandemic. Anything change? A lot. Everything. It felt like a different country to me this time around. Infrastructure, lifestyle, um, 
honestly, EVs, uh, technologies in general, I think they've made leaps um, that we've never seen before in the past four or five years. Wild. Yeah. So uh, what, what do you want to hit this week? Um, I feel like, you know, it's been, a, it's been about a month since we last chat, and I think we should do a bit of a recap um, yeah. and sort of a summary of what has transpired since the collapse of SVB. Um, so let's start maybe with uh, the economy and just, just want to give you some highlights on, on what I've seen since I've been back. The broader picture is that the, the, the U.S. economy has started to weaken, uh, which is actually <laughs> a good news, for, uh, especially in the battle for inflation. Uh, retail sales has gone down. And uh, in fact, the one for Mars that just came out is negative 1%, which is two, two times as bad as expected. Import export prices are falling. CPI, which came out also for Mars this, this, this week, um, is at the lowest we've seen since this whole inflation battle has started. Headline is still around 5%, but core CPI month, on, month for month, which is what really matters here, uh, is at 0.4% and uh, lower than expected. And we're definitely sort of trending in the right direction. The Fed minutes that came out, uh, which showed sort of detailed the conversations the Fed officials had in, in March when they were hiking, showed that overall uh, the Fed officials are less inclined to hike rates this year as market sort of was pricing in, especially in the aftermath of SVB. But they are still determined to fight inflation uh, until the, you know, the headline rates uh, goes back down to 2%. So the net result of all that, you know, weakening the economy and, and Fed, is that the job market is also cooling down. So we're seeing you know, initial jobless claims climbing. So everything's really trending in the right direction here when it comes to uh, the battle with inflation, which is good. Now, that's the economy. So how has the market responded to all that? Um, before I left, we, we, you know, in the immediate math of SVB, the market reaction was so drastic that it's something that we haven't seen for a long time. We went from a hiking path straight to a cutting path. I think at the time, um, Mark was pricing uh, the Fed will be on pause and, and 100 basis point worth of cuts by the end of the year. Since I've been back, that picture has changed, especially since market has calmed down quite a bit since then, uh, especially in the financial sector. And inflation is also coming back down a little bit, a little bit as expected. Um, so now the market is pricing in a final hike in the May meeting that's coming up of 25 basis point, which will bring us to the lower bound of 5% and a 50 basis point cut by the end of the year, as opposed to 100 basis point, which is much more reasonable in my opinion. In fact, my personal opinion is that, you know, given how volatility has, has, has gone down and inflation is also trending in the right direction, but not there yet, I think the Fed will be at around 5% and then stay there for the rest of the year. So there's still a little bit of a disconnect in terms of what the market, is, what the market wants and what I think is reasonable. Um, but, you know, markets are usually optimistic 
and, 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 you know, in the stock market, as you can see that very clearly before I left, I also predicted that big tech will definitely benefit from all of this. And sure they did. Um, Apple is up 8% in the past months. Amazon up seven, Meta up 14, Alphabet up 15, Netflix up 15. The biggest names have all, have all but recovered fully from their pandemic lows um, and SVB lows. S&P overall is up 5%. five percent. So we're, we're, we're at a point where, you know, there, there are more bulls now than, than bears in the market and, and when it comes to public stocks, um, which I think is, 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 is a point for caution. I think people should realize that the Fed is not going to be as accommodative as they think. And, and uh, the stock market is a little bit overheated at the moment. Um, we're, you know, from, from, from the invest, investing side, in the family office, we're also seeing quite a lot of activities picking up uh, in the private markets too. I'm sure that's what the venture side is seeing. And, you know, deals are getting done, of course, at, at still reasonable valuation and, and things are definitely trending trending back. And, and it's, 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 it's been great. Do you think this is us entering back into normalcy? And, you know, there'll be some bumps in the road, but things are kind of normalizing and we're run. We've reset and we're on our new trajectory, mm. or is this a momentary moment of bliss? Um, uh, that yeah. things are positive, but yeah. there's a shitstorm coming around the corner. Yeah, great question. I, I think the, the immediate risk of market collapse has, at this point, dissipated and, and gone away. So, we, you know, looking at the horizon, there's just not a lot of risky events that are foreseeable that uh, the market is sort of preparing for and being cautious about. So, which is why it, there's a momentum to go up. That's not to say that uh, we don't have things to worry about in the medium term, or of course, in the longer term. The war is still not over, and inf- the battle with inflation is not over. The, um, you know, the overall employment picture is not over. You know, the labor market is still very, very tight, and we need to correct that in, in order for the economy to be in the right in the right condition for the longer term. And, you know, the economy is weakening. So I, I don't think if you ask me what my prediction is for, let's say, end of the year, where we would be, I think we're, we're going to be largely sort of flat or unchanged and from, 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 from here on. So it will be some volatilities up and down, but there's no immediate concern up or, or down from, from here. So it's very difficult to say that uh, this is it and we're at the bottom. I don't, I don't think that's the case. There's still a lot of instabilities globally. And, and as we've seen, um, you know, what's happening in France and uh, away from the U.S., let's say. And, and we need, to, we need to, to take those into consideration. Okay. Good recap. We'll warm back up. So next week we'll hit something new. Yeah, 100%. Let's talk All about right, China. Yeah, no, I, based on some of the side convos we've already had about your trip, mm. um, I'm very eager to learn more. I think the perception of China for most Americans is not aligned with what the current state is. Yeah, for a reason. I think uh, politically, it's, it's, you know, we're inclined to, to always think the worst of our strongest enemy. And uh, it's... Uh, but if you're, when you're on the ground and locally and you, you see what's actually happening, uh, not in just the you know, primary cities, but in the secondary tertiary cities, 
uh, it's uh, it's it's at this point, I think you know, lifestyle wise, uh, they're five ten years ahead of us. So wow. yeah, we got to pay attention. Thank you, Chris. Have a good one. And a quick reminder for everybody: Chris is an SEC registered RIA, so nothing he said should be construed as investment advice. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. You know, we're hearing all this stuff. One thing to keep in mind as we're talking about China, changes in AI and Google, is the only constant is change. And, you know, we talk, we talk a lot about an interplay. You got to kind of surf the wave you're given. So under, it's important to understand these, con- these concepts and what's happening, but uh, better not to get stressed about it. Be action-oriented and think about what you can do and how it can impact your life positively. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.